Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and I am joined in this hour by Dr. Roderick Graham. He's an associate professor in sociology and criminal justice at Old Dominion University. He also, really interestingly and more fascinatingly for me, goes by the handle Your Neighborhood Sociologist on Twitter, That's which right. is yeah. awesome. <laughs> it makes me think that he is sort of the Spider-Man of sociologists, <laughs> and he writes social critique through a sociological lens. In other words, he likes to explain current events using concepts and theories from sociology, which is a great lens to look through everything going on in our culture. Everything going on in our culture is sort of a mess right now. So I am looking forward to understanding it better. Dr. Graham, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thanks for having me, Matt. Rod's, Rod's fine. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, let's, yeah. let's go with that. You know, let's, let's just start at the top. I know the answer to this, I think, because my mother is a sociologist. But what is a sociologist? What, what, what do you do? Well, sociologists study the impact of institutions, laws, and policies on individuals and groups. Got in a it. nutshell, it's a pretty succinct definition, but, but that's kind of what it is. And so it, it's sort of a broad, it's a set of tools, a set of concepts mm-hmm. for looking at everything going on in our society, our culture. You apply it to criminal justice and, and society, but it's, it's just, it's a, it's a framework, I guess, for, for looking at everything going on in the world around us. Yes, and it's a very powerful one, and it's needed because we're so used to thinking as individuals, naturally, we think that way because we are uh, individuals, but also, I mean, our culture, American culture is such that we're very individualistic, but sometimes you have to take that wider lens and look at how policies are impacting groups of people, because we find that, yes, we are individuals, but people respond to institutions and policies broadly in similar ways. So we need to see how we can change those policies to change group behaviors. Right, right. Well, that's a great lead in to you, right? You, you do a lot of things. You're a professor. You are a, 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 a prolific Twitterer and a very fascinating follow, I should say. And you have a YouTube channel, which is a great watch. And you write for a publication, the editorial board that I also write for from time to time. Your yes. writing appears in, in, in a number of forms. You recently wrote an article suggesting that we need a better sociological imagination in America. That was a great, was a great phrase. What mm. did you mean by that? What, what were you, what are you arguing for in that article? Well, the, so that phrase, sociological imagination, if someone took a sociology course, they probably have heard it before. It's from a, a great sociologist, C. Wright Mills. And so it, this was, I think he wrote a book in the late 50s called The Sociological Imagination. I'm not sure the date, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great phrase. And so it's just taken on a life of its own. But yes, it means to use your sociological understanding of the world to make sense of group problems. 
one person who is, and I think I wrote this in the, the piece, one person who is unemployed, it's, it's possible that you can look at their character, their skills, uh, uh, their abilities. But if you're noticing widespread unemployment, that personal issue becomes a public problem. And, and we need to look at how as a society we can change or address those public problems. And that's the, that's the sociological imagination, trying to see um, how external forces Im- impact us. And the, the connection point that really resonated with me was you alluded to, but you started off with a, a pretty blunt statement. We are not healthy. And I think you didn't just mean that as an aggregation of individuals, although you cite individual statistics. You, you note that 42% of our country is obese. The, yeah. mm-hmm. th- that we have a, 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 an epidemic, obviously, of opioid use. Life expectancy is going down, especially for white males. And we are replete with what have been termed deaths of despair. There mm-hmm. are other statistics that I, I'm sure ended up on the cutting room floor of your piece, but that I've been ruminating about myself. You know, that the birth rate is down hey, yeah. 35%. Mm-hmm. And you could say, well, you know, as income goes up in countries, then the birth rate tends to go down. On the other hand, you could say, we have polling that shows that people are not hopeful about the economic future for mm-hmm. their children or mm-hmm. the collective future of the country. And in that kind of environment, you could see why, you know, people are less interested in having children. I think what you were talking about in this piece and, and the reason we need a sociological imagination is it's not just these aggregation of individual statistics. It's what is it saying about the underlying condition of American society and culture that we collectively seem to be not healthy, as you put it. That's right. And that's, I didn't think actually, it, that was not on the cutting room floor about the low birth rates, but that is something to, to think about actually. People are making a decision based upon the environment they're navigating to not have kids. And to the extent that we want people, young people to get married and have kids, that's a problem, right? And I think that we've eviscerated our social uh, services, our human services so much until it just doesn't, I mean, it's, it's a very difficult thing to have a, a, a child today. That's not necessarily an individual decision. It seems that way, you know, maybe it's an aggregate of individuals, but it's more the environment that we've created, which then people have to navigate and, and they make the decision, no, I don't want to have a child. Well, and it, it connects in my mind to another indicator that we see popping up. If, you, if you're trolling through statistics on uh, how sick we are kind of collectively as a country, you find that rates of depression are up significantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what's called major depression in, in psychological terms, the suicide rate is up mm-hmm. 35%. Mm-hmm. And what's I think most distressing for me, kind of connecting to this idea of birth rates going down, that how hard it is to be a young person in America today, is that where you really see rates of depression skyrocketing is among young people, especially among young women. And that, of course, came to light most in the in the revelations from the Facebook whistleblower, Francis Haugen, who showed that Facebook mm. is well aware of this, that they've, they've looked into it, and that there, there's probably a connection point happening here with online culture and teen anxiety, teen depression. And so you can kind of see how we together are sort of sociologically having a failure of imagination. Again, I'm sort of, I'm sort of both reading and reading between the lines of, of what you're suggesting here and that we're, there's a lot going on right now and we're not 
We're not thinking about it comprehensively enough and taking a step back and saying, well, hold on, there's something fundamentally really wrong happening here. That's true. There is something wrong. It's, it's really unfortunate because in some ways, our society's hyper-individualistic ethos, I guess, has been beneficial, very much so. You know, let's go settle the West. You know, let's invent something. Let's pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. That's important. And you got to have that ethic in a capitalist democracy. But if it goes too far where we say everything is about you as the, as the individual and you make your world, then you forget about what's going on outside of us. So you, you mentioned Facebook and they know Instagram causes problems for young women, young girls. They, they see images of people, you know, they're all photoshopped and they look all beautiful. And of course, they then compare themselves to that and they find themselves wanting, right? And so it can lead to uh, uh, depression. Okay. One way to look at that is to say, well, don't feel that way, you know, <laughs> you know, understand that, you know, you're beautiful. And, just, and, just, and then another way, and I think we kind of realize that as uh, Facebook, we're kind of mad at Facebook is that, look, you've created a structure, Facebook and Instagram, that is, that is causing this problem and you need to change that structure. And that's the sociological imagination. What can we do mm. to change the environment that, that we live in uh, to create better outcomes? Yeah, it's, it's so interesting to me. And this is a whole, we could completely crowd out any other discussion on this show if we got onto one of my hobby horses, which is the stunning correlation between the rise in the rates of all the statistics we just talked about and the introduction of the retweet button in 2009 and the share button on Facebook in 2012. <laughs> I'm not implying causality, right? <laughs> I mean, you're the social scientist, not me. I, there's correlation. I'm not saying there's causality. It's just interesting. But anyway, I do want to move on to another <laughs> article you wrote recently, which I, what I really enjoyed about it was that it was a little counterintuitive. Look, we're so used to putting people into neat ideological boxes these days. This person is liberal. This person is conservative. This person's a MAGA Trumpist. I think that these are often a lot blurrier than you know intellectual types like to imagine. And that's why I was sort of pleasantly surprised by the very coherent argument you made that Democrats are not being straight up with people when they talk about immigration. Our, our editor at the editorial board, John Storer, who's a deep thinker and he's been a guest on this show before, tweeted on January 3rd. He tweeted, I think we should open the borders. You responded by saying, absolutely not. And then you laid out <laughs> yeah. your argument yeah, 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 in, yeah. in very cogent terms. Uh -huh. What was your argument? What do you mean that Democrats aren't being straight up with people? Well, immigration in the long run does benefit all economically. GDP rises. In the short term, though, people will lose jobs. They just, they just will. Or they will be competing with immigrants, and so that's going to depress wages. And so you got to <laughs> be straight up with that. That's going to happen. And then secondly, although we are, I'm a progressive, I'm assuming that, that, that you are certainly John is on the left. And so we, we celebrate diversity and multiculturalism. But that doesn't mean that people who have these communities where they've been in for decades are necessarily happy with that community changing rapidly. So we can make a moral argument and say that, well, you should be happy. I mean, uh, I mean, what's the, what's the deal? I mean, you've been living in this black neighborhood for two decades and I'm, I'm sure you're happy, but okay, Hispanics comes in, that should, Hispanic folks come in, that should enrich that neighborhood. That's a should argument that they should feel happy. And I think over time people are, you know, people are people, they just accept it and, and embrace that diversity. But in the short term, they're like, you know, 
things are changing here. And I don't, I don't like it. I was happy with the way things are. My life and in, in, in my everyday life had meaning. The center that I used to go to now has changed. And I'm a little uncomfortable about that. I understand that that's not a nice narrative, but I think that's the reality. And so what, what Democrats would need to do is, is sort of find a way of framing that honestly. Otherwise, what's going to happen is you're going to have a lot of people who may not who may decide that, well, you know what, Republicans are the, are the group for me because they're talking uh, plainly about immigration. So, yeah. And, and you started by saying that these lines are blurry. They are. So I'm a somewhat socially conservative in many ways. And it, and it comes from me, at least being raised up in a Christian Southern Baptist uh, background. I'm not uh, religious now, but, but I carry those things with me. And so it means that um, I'm okay with, even though I'm a progressive, very much on the left, I'm okay with faith-based initiatives. You know, I'm okay with strengthening the, the family. You know, those things are, are, are cool with me. And I think that a lot of people who end up, especially people of color, who vote Democrat because overall it's better, do have some conservative leanings. Yeah, that's, that's what I find really... <laughs> Boy, this is a deep topic you, you've introduced for me personally, because I feel like you feel. I'm definitely on the left. I like to call myself a progressive centrist. I don't know. Fox News has turned progressive into a pejorative. So I, I don't I don't even know if I want to own that progressive part of that anymore. I'm whatever. I'm kind of center left. All right. Mm -hmm. But now I'm gonna now I'm gonna make everyone on the on the far left angry at me that oh I'm a center, whatever. I don't like labels, and I think that's the point, is that. I think a lot of people, including a lot of people who are generally on the left, have some ambivalence, maybe isn't the right word, but they have some nuance. They have some complexity. Maybe yeah. they come from mm -hmm. a background that includes some socially conservative elements. Maybe they're human beings and they, they recognize, hey, you know what? I want to afford people who are trans as much dignity, respect, equality, and grace as I can. I'm just getting used to things. So could you could you give me like a minute That's to right. sort of catch up and, and feel comfortable? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think just to kind of connect to the politics part of this, because this is a show where we mostly do politics. If there's one thing that's really stuck in my craw about the Democratic approach, the Democratic Party, not, not small D, big D, the Democrats mm -hmm. approach to politics in recent years, it's been to approach Americans and say, listen, you're a bigot. And you're so ignorant that you can't possibly right. realize yeah, yeah, how yeah. flawed a human being you are. But good news, I'm here to make things better. I'm going to fix you. <laughs> yeah, you're yeah, welcome. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. you, and for some reason, we're surprised when people are not like, oh, thank you. That's great. That's, that's wonderful. I mean, I, I, do, you, do you detect this same kind of, we're, we're, we're failing to connect by starting a conversation with people that starts with, it's okay. I'm not. I, I hear where you're coming from and you can you can openly express your discomfort. I'm not going to judge you for that. Yeah, I mean, you're arguing for civility and, and a public sphere. And I think that's important. Uh, I think social media makes that kind of difficult. But but yeah, I mean, it, it would be it, it would be better, more advantageous to people on the left if they realize that, yeah, they're, they're advocating for things that a lot of people might overall find good, but just as just things are changing and we want to figure out what's going on and, and approach it in that way instead of assuming that because we are skitterish about how fast we are adopting uh, this stance towards trans people. That doesn't mean that we're transphobic. Yeah. And I, I think you're right about that. To me, there, there's, there's something going on in terms of how social media pulls the narrative 
And I think it's on both sides. And I'm not a both sider. I actually think that, because that happens a lot. People say, well, it all happens on this side. But in this case, I think, yes, you have a very vocal, very intelligent, very tech savvy collection of people on the left who get on social media and can pull the narrative, okay? Pulling it this way, far to the left for those who I'm using left for those who are listening already. And then you have, maybe not on Twitter so much, but certainly on Facebook, a large population of people on the right who are pushing a nationalist, maybe Christian nationalist, you know, mistrust the government narrative. And they're very vocal and very active on social media. And they're pulling that narrative that way. And so you got people in the middle who are like, you know, I'm not with, you know, <laughs> white nationalism. I'm not with, you know, you know, open borders. Where do I fit in this? You know, and, and yeah, th- those people often, often get lost. Yeah, that's right. It's, it, it definitely feels that way to me where when I read the caricature of, for example, and we're going to get much more into this. When I read the caricature of critical race theory, my reaction is, well, I'm not with that, right? Mm-hmm. On the other yeah, hand, yeah, yeah. I, I, I have Republican friends. I, I appear on radio with, with a friend of mine, a panelist on a discussion show who's a Republican, who is well aware of the fact that the Republican Party has, to some degree, become a coalition with people who are white supremacists. Yeah, they yeah. are. And mm-hmm. you know, her reaction is, well, I'm definitely not with that. And I, I just... There is some research to back this up. The Hidden Tribes report, I think, was pretty eye-opening in this regard. But I think that's the reaction of most people is, well, I'm not with that. I don't want to be associated with that. But but it's hard for people to to find common ground online, even though we are the majority of people. We are the majority of people who see nuance, who don't want to get into flame wars online. We're just sort of pulled that way. Yeah, yeah. And full disclosure, I have been the person piled on for saying the thing in the center. And I've been the person on the far left who's done the piling. Someone who said something in the center. And there's something about, like you said, social media that makes that that makes that happen. It's 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 very unfortunate. I, I think I think social media is good overall because you can learn things, you can connect with people, but yet it, it does have a nasty side. One of the articles that you wrote recently on the editorial board, also appears on uh, other websites, Alternet, Raw Story, many other outlets. One of the things you wrote recently was about affirmative action. This has re-entered the news recently because the Supreme Court has decided to take up the case that involves certain institutions of higher learning, including Harvard, and whether they can maintain race as a factor in admissions. And what was so interesting to me was I read your article. I also read, I, I like the, the writer, John McWhorter, who appears in the New York Times. And, and you made an argument that's, that very closely echoed each other. You, you, you said, all right, well, we can talk about race being a factor in admissions, but what about class? We have to look at that yeah. as mm-hmm. well. What were you referring to? Well, statistics are overwhelming that at elite universities, children from wealthy parents are much more likely to uh, be accepted into those schools. They dominate those campuses by a ridiculous margin. I don't have the stats in front of me, but if you look them up or or you can see my article and see those stats in there, it's quite astounding. Yeah, I think it's and like so, 70 
it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's what's stuck, but maybe I'm making up a number. That sounds about right. 70%. It's probably, you know. You could have so, told me anything up to 100. That was <laughs> yeah. And so uh, wealthy. So uh, just a caveat here, though, that th it's not that those students don't deserve to be there. They, they certainly work hard. But with, with wealth, you're able to create, this is the sociology again, create the environment necessary for students to, to maximize their, their abilities. And so they end up on those campuses a lot more. Whereas people who are uh, coming from working class and poor backgrounds just simply don't have that. They simply don't. And so they don't end up on those campuses. So yeah, class and race and even other factors should be taken into account when we select students for colleges. Well, it... <laughs> You know, it's interesting because we started off this discussion about by 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 defining sociology and also talking about sociological imagination. And it feels to me like the argument comes down to essentially sociology, essentially, how do we think about this, not simply from an individual standpoint, but from more of a group standpoint? Because as you just said a, a minute ago, this isn't about who deserves to be there. As you say in your article, 80% of colleges admit almost everyone. So everyone deserves to be there. What we're really talking about is a certain subset of highly selective, that's a euphemism, but you know what I mean, highly mm -hmm. selective institutions. There's a huge group of students who all deserve to be there. What we're really talking about is how do we benefit everybody by giving them the experience of being with people who they may not have experienced in their lives. I will tell you that when I, I, I went to an elite undergraduate institution and I will tell you that the most valuable experience that I had there was when the OJ Simpson verdict came down. I'm dating myself a little bit. And I was surprised. Why? Because I'm a white dude and I, I saw the world a certain way. And I approached a friend of mine, a classmate, who was wearing a sign saying not guilty and she's black. And, and, mm -hmm. and I made some comment to the effect of, wow, I can't. And that's when I got an education in, there are different ways to view something like this. Like I said, the most valuable experience I had because it opened my eyes to a whole segment of my fellow Americans who just saw this major item in the news and, 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 it, not only that in a different way, but it just opened a door into an entire experience that I was not aware of. And so, mm -hmm. I, like we were saying a minute ago, I feel nuanced about this. The idea of the idea of making decisions about people's future economic opportunities on the basis of race does feel a little uncomfortable to me. As a group, I I believe in the benefits that that diversity affords to everybody. So I. I, anyway, I thought your article captured that pretty darn well. Yeah, in some ways, the narrative is a bit off to me. And maybe that's because I'm on a college campus. So maybe it's good that I'm talking to other people so I can get that diverse and <laughs> diversity. Because the purpose of affirmative action is not about merit, really. It's about producing that environment that's conducive to learning about other cultures and so or, or backgrounds. And so... In the article, I talk about that evolution from going from strict racial quotas, which I think everyone thinks that, okay, maybe that made sense in 1965, but not now, you don't have to do that. You know, Moving from strict racial quotas to now being only used in situations where the college 
wants to produce a diverse student body and can't do it in other ways. That's a very narrow thing, but people don't, don't, don't necessarily get that. You know, they, they just imagine that it's a Hispanic student with a low SAT score getting in over a white or Asian student with a high SAT score. And, and those situations are so, until it's, it's, it's just not, I mean, you mentioned earlier that most colleges uh, let everyone in. In fact, at this point, like in my university, it's a mid-tier school. We want more students. So this, this isn't some kind of affirmative action thing across the country where, you know, people are just, universities are just plucking students with low SAT scores and dumping them on campus. That's not what's happening. And I think that's the narrative. Instead, what's actually happening is you've got 10 or 15 schools. And I'm talking about that, 10 or 15. So I graduated from CUNY, which is like 25. So it's not bad. But even in that case, it doesn't even apply to CUNY. Like it might apply to like Yale. I'm talking about the CUNY PhD department. So it, it, would, it would be like Yale or Harvard, you know, the standards of the world. In those cases where you've got the decision between one person versus another, then affirmative action, racial preferences come into, and it does, you know, you, you, you know I wouldn't sit here and say it doesn't, but though that's, that's such a narrow thing. And the, and the rationale for it is very different than just putting up a, a Hispanic or Black person on campus. And so we don't get that broad context. We really don't. So that's one thing. And second, you write about, so your experiences on, on campus, uh, I think show the benefit, although you, you may have been like, what, OJ is guilty, what's wrong with you? Right. <laughs> so you might you probably said that as I, as I did actually, but, but, um, <laughs> but, but, but those experiences are important and we want that. I want that as a teacher. I want to have different kids from different backgrounds, not just race, although that's a biggie, but also class, being a veteran in, in Norfolk, where I am, it's a, it's a large military area. And so having students whose parents are in the military were, it's quite interesting because they have a different perspective on things. And we want that on campus. We really do. Right, right. Well, that... that... Well, two thoughts. One is that broader view on diversity is important. Another formative experience for me in college, I had another friend, a great guy, truly one of the best people that I met in college. And he was a member of the campus Christian group. And they got together for Bible study every Sunday. And he came by, knocked on my dorm room door and, and invited me to Bible study. I'm Jewish. So, you know, I, I made a little joke and I said, oh, I don't, I don't know. How do you feel about the Old Testament? And of course he said, well, I think it's, it's crucial. Well, man, I felt like a jerk, right? Because I'm like, <laughs> I'm making light of something. And he took me as entirely earnest and, and replied earnestly. And I, again, it was a window. It was a window into someone's earnestly held belief. And he's part of a liberal arts college where everyone is you know, intellectual and liberal. And this is also a part of his experience again, just a window into a type of diversity in our world and in our country that I needed to better understand. Mm -hmm. But I am off on a soapbox here because I, I, I think your larger point is just, is so well taken that we often get, and I'm going to bridge here to another article of yours. This is, this is me forming a bridge. It's just a long bridge. We get, we get drawn into these arguments that are real. They're important. Things like affirmative action, but when you break it down, as you did in your article, you see, well, wait a second. Is this really the core issue here? Is this, or is this a little bit of, it's important, but this is, this is a narrow slice. This is affecting relatively, a, a relatively small fraction of the population. The real issue is how come we don't have better access to high quality 
higher education that is esteemed by, by employers across our country for everybody. Why are there mm. only so many highly selective schools? Why are we having this argument about you know 25 or 30 or 50 schools? We should really be talking about 350 schools and the level of opportunity we create there. On that note, speaking of issues that very easily become side issues, I want to talk about critical race theory. <laughs> That's a fun one. You, you, wrote, you wrote a great article about, you introduced a term I hadn't heard before, hate launderers. So before we get into CRT, what did you mean by, by that term? It was, could you just describe that for our listeners? Sure. It's, it's making very intellectualized arguments that are ultimately hateful in their implications. So by making them in that intellectualized way, you're kind of cleaning them, right? So, so that's, that, that's the idea with hate launderers. Right, and so you, you almost provide, it's like a Shakespearean thing, being a useful idiot. It's like you're, you're except you're a useful intellectual. You, you are sort of providing a, a, a pleasant sounding, a, a cogent, perhaps a, a research and data-driven argument, but you're, the ultimate effect of it is, is unhelpful. And you, you, you apply this term to people who kind of find themselves somewhere on the spectrum of discussion around an issue like critical race theory, where, or uh, you apply it also to, to trans issues, yeah, where, yeah. you know, where they, you know, for example, in the in the idea that has taken hold that there may be such a thing as rapid onset onset gender dysphoria, which is mm -hmm. you're uncomfortable with your gender identity and it happens quickly. And there's some research, there's some suggestion, there, there's some basis for saying this is a thing and this is this is becoming more of a thing. But your argument is what you what a lot of people who advance this and do it on shows like Joe Rogan are doing is they're sort of providing mm -hmm. an intellectual framework and sort of permission for people who are really just anti-trans. That's right. So that's that that's actually a better actually a better explanation than 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 how I started with hate loan. But that's right. They're providing an intellectual framework. They could be reasonable people. I'm sure uh, most of them are, and they don't necessarily mean to be hateful. But yes, uh, you give you 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 provide the tools for for actual bigots to use against trans women, people of color. Absolutely. So, here's my here's my question. I, I sort of need your now now I'm coming to you in, in your role as a professor. I feel like your student here. If you're someone like me, we've talked about the bulk of people. We think we both think kind of falling into this gray zone of nuance, right? Of, of being a little bit like us. We can see arguments on both sides. We have a mix. We're not purely just the caricature of, of progressives, for example, or conservatives. It feels like issues like the current brouhaha over trans issues or critical race theory are a trap. They're, it feels like an Admiral Akbar level trap. Like, don't you see that, that engaging in this is a trap because on the one hand, we feel some nuance, some ambivalence, perhaps. We could see the argument of, well, there is value. I was just expressing the value of, like for example, on critical race theory. I want my kids exposed to uncomfortable ideas, ideas that they may not like at first, that they may not agree with. When I was an economics student, 
I, I learned socialist economic theory. Why? Not because I was learning to be a budding socialist. It's because it broadened my perspective and it, and it, and it helped me understand what I ultimately became, which was a regular old American capitalist. So I want that, but, but the entire argument is a trap. How do I avoid, how do I express some of my, my nuance, my ambivalence without becoming a hate launderer? Does that make sense to you? Like, like it does. I, I it don't does. want to enable people who have an agenda, which is just to stir, you know, anti-CRT and use that as a boogeyman for liberals. But I want to express, well, I, I do have some concerns here. Like, I, how, do, how mm -hmm. does one do that? Okay, so that's a, that's a tough one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to personalize it and bring in a different topic. So we're talking about transphobia and CRT, but I could probably best talk about it using my own experiences with something else. So I am concerned about the fate of, of boys and men in society. So a lot of the indicators suggest that, you know, when it comes to education and deaths of despair, you know, they, it, it's, it's within that male, male population. Okay. And so I have a bit of a problem with the, uh, notion of toxic masculinity, actually. I think that, sure, there are some behaviors that are toxic if, you know, they're taken to the extreme, but generally, I don't think there's a, a, a lot wrong with trying to be competitive. And, and, and so I, you know, I think it's not that bad. So my Twitter mutuals are, are very much to the left, probably more left than me. And so when I make these arguments on Twitter, they, they want to get mad. I even try and understand, you know, maybe you've heard of this term incels. It's a very yes, explosive, yes. yes, it's a very explosive thing because the, there are guys there that are really hating on women and talking about violence towards women. Right. It's a very sensitive thing. At the same time, there's a large bulk of guys who end up in that community because they've had some bad experiences. And so I want to say, look, we have to try and talk about those experiences, men in general, and then also those guys who are you know, moving into that very bad direction. Okay, so that, that's the background. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I have to be careful how I talk about things and couch those things in the concerns of people who are most vulnerable. That's not easy, but that is what I try to do. So I have to acknowledge that, yeah, that incel community has produced some guys who've gone out and, and hurt women. You have to say that before you then try and build this argument for compassion towards, towards men who are troubled, right? And so one, I have to do that. And then two, it's important the venue. So I think in a hate launderers piece, some of the references pointed out some publications that consistently produce what I think are racist arguments, transphobic arguments, maybe even sexist arguments. And so I would not want to lend my voice to that space. I would I prefer to talk about it in a different space. So that, that's not easy. I'm, I'm, not, I'm saying this as if it's such, such an easy thing to do. But because I have been burned in the past by bringing up these things and, and a lot of folks didn't like it, I am learning how to communicate those things uh, a little bit better. It is so hard. And I, for one thing, I think if you haven't been burned on Twitter or Facebook at least once, then you're probably you're probably being too timid. That's I don't right. think I, yeah. maybe I've been, maybe I haven't been burned enough because, you know, that's, and second of all, it suggests that, you know, it's hard to have a conversation that is sort of a megaphone out to the world and you don't know who you're talking to, mm -hmm. but it's, 
it is so hard. And it's, I, I see what you mean. It's, is, is that the, the space in which you're communicating is, is part of the battle here, which is you, if you're going to write an argument in, people go to those publications that you talk about in your article for a certain type of contact, almost with a motivation to look for a justification. That's right. Or That's right. kind of like a pre-existing, they already know how they feel. They're, they're looking for ammunition to prove their argument. And I think that's how a lot of people engage in, in online argument and research. They're not looking to be educated or exposed to different perspectives. They're looking for confirmation. They're looking, mm -hmm. for, they're, they're looking for sort of intellectual comfort food for what they already want. And so I, I, I guess it, it sounds like what you're saying is that the, the trick here is to sort of choose the forum wisely where you engage in, if you're going to talk about nuance, if you're going to talk about, you know, maybe there's a little bit of a mixed story here, you got to decide where you're doing that. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And those places, I, they started out. So I, one of the um, publications that I mentioned was, was Quillette, which produces some high quality stuff, actually. Uh, and it started out, I think, as a place for intellectuals and academics to talk about these issues. But I think the dynamic that you point out, it's very perceptive, is pushing that publication more to produce more of those things to feed the people who uh, are looking for uh, confirmation. So that, that's very uh, unfortunate. So yeah, it's, it's important to try and find that 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 space to communicate those things well again it's back to my hobby horse right it's like virality like and share eyeballs engagement and attention mm -hmm. and the algorithm just pushes you and pushes you until you know you have a space like quillette where a lot of good stuff there but yes. you know they get pushed further and further to create mm -hmm. stuff well i we're, we're, we're coming toward the end i want to just quickly touch one more article one more sure. article. We'll, mm -hmm. we'll shoehorn this in I, I had not been following, this is embarrassing because one of these exists in the neighborhood that I grew up in, in New York City, a harm reduction center. You had a fascinating kind of take on harm. First of all, what are harm reduction centers and what did you conclude about them? So the a harm reduction center is, it's, it's more philosophy where the idea is maybe that drug user can't get off drugs today and, and there needs to be other things going on in that drug user's life for them to make the steps towards getting off drugs. And so it's not about abstinence uh, or, or cessation. Instead, it's about preventing the negative externalities of that drug user trying to get that. So one could be harm to the drug user himself. So, so maybe they're using dirty needles maybe they're, they're, they're using in a space or yeah, they're using in a space where there's no supervision. So they may overdose and die. And you want to reduce that by allowing them to take drugs in a safe place. There are also externalities in the community. Now, some of these are, are, are negative, but, but in this case, I'm going to talk about the drug users. So when drug users don't have a safe space, then they end up going into negative spaces of dangerous places to use drugs, and then they can get hurt that way. So, so that's what harm reduction centers are. It's not all 100% good, as I mentioned in that article, but it probably will reduce overdoses, which have spiked uh, in the United States. What I really appreciated about that article, which again, people can just check out the editorial board, you can Google it, you can sign up, you know, you can get the work uh, of, of people like Rod Graham, 
what I really appreciated about that article was it kind of takes us full circle to where we started in this conversation. It helped me understand how you as a sociologist look at a problem like harm reduction centers. And you took a very kind of collective benefit cost analysis type view toward it. And I it was refreshing because we look at so many problems through a purely political lens. Conservatives have sort of a pre-programmed take. Liberals have a pre-programmed take. And you had a nuanced take, which is let's look at this collectively. Total harms, total, total benefits, and where do we weigh them out? And the answer is it's not a slam dunk. You can probably make a case that leans one way toward the, the use of these kinds of places. Yes, every, in preparing for that article, I tried to read articles, research articles that talked about, see, so the big question will be, will these harm reduction centers increase the amount of people who are addicted to drugs? That does not seem to be the case. So if that is not the case, then sure, you wanna try and reduce the harm to the current drug users. And that's why the harm reduction centers should work. To me, that captures what your writing is all about, which is kind of finding some of these nuance points and having a, a thoughtful discussion about them, which is all too absent in our current political culture. So thank you for doing that with me here on Beyond Politics. People can find your work on YouTube, on the editorial board, and here on Beyond Politics. So I hope people will subscribe and check us out. Thanks so much for joining me, Dr. Rod Graham. Thanks for having me, Matt.